friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find us under Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today we're going to start out with Professor Chad Pegnold of the Catholic University of America. There's a struggle going on over whether or not private, and this I include Catholic parochial schools, schools should open when the public schools remain closed now in September. We'll also touch on another story lighting up the internet these days regarding a Catholic saint who has had his name dragged through the mud recently. Professor Pegnold also writes for First Things, and he wrote about this saint from just last week. Make sure to catch his writings there. Welcome to the show, Chad. It's great to be with you. You're always reacting to the strange culture that we're living in, especially as our lives really got strange in 2020. Mm-hmm. We seem to be living in just bizarre world, and things keep this, getting. This is our horrible year. Yeah. Yes, we're really all of us struggling. Some of us more than others. I don't want to minimize people who are dealing with tragedy because there's a lot of that mm-hmm. going around, and I don't want to minimize that. But in general, all of us, if if we haven't been touched by tragedy, we've certain certainly been touched by the the lack of logic behind some of the the lockdown measures that have been employed across the country. Yeah, agree. In your neck of the wood, you live in Arlington. That well, seems next as, right next to it. But you seem to be especially plagued by some crazy arbitrary rules lately. Well, I mean, you know, the D.C. area generally, not just the District of Columbia, but the outlying counties and cities around D.C. are very, very blue. They're idiot-driven, and, you know, there, there was an argument for being very, very strict at the very beginning when, when COVID hit, um, and, we, and we, it seemed with high positivity rates, and we were, especially our, our, our elderly were dying. There was, I think, an argument that could be made early on for really strict lockdowns. But the World Health Organization has its standards, which is, yes, so put those, put those quarantines in place and, until you hit 5% positivity. And when you hit 5% positivity, you can reopen things. Well, the whole D.C. area is at somewhere between 2.6 and 4.6 positivity. We're well below the World Health Organization standards. The CDC and the Academy of... American Academy of Pediatrics have encouraged reopening of schools. Uh, And yet in our area, around the Capitol, we have uh, health executives, county health executives, demanding that private schools be closed. We have the Arlington County saying that groups of of more than three must be six feet spaced from each other. You must be, you can't walk down the street in any configuration closer than six feet to one another or you'll get a hundred dollar fine that means if you're a family of five you need to separate your family mm-hmm. if you're a family of seven and so on and these are just draconian draconian strictures below the world health organization standards for what they count as safe reopening and i, well, I don't what do you make of it gracie it's it's really extraordinary 
well, from a doctor. From a medical perspective, a lot of the rules are arbitrary and illogical. And mm-hmm. I think that there, a lot of them are being done for psychological reasons. People want to feel that they're doing something, that they're attacking, that they're in the battle. Right. So uh, that, yes, there's a psychological satisfaction that comes from making these elaborate systems of, of rules, but from a, an epidemiological perspective or a virology perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The other night, my husband and I went out to dinner outdoors, of course, at a restaurant, a hotel nearby, actually. And there was a, a family, like you say, a family of five, and they were sitting in tables side by side, the father with two of the children and the mother in the next door table with another child. They split, this them, is, up. They split them up. And it makes absolutely... Exactly. Yeah, they were probably staying all in the same hotel room. (laughs) And they came down and couldn't eat together. So that doesn't make sense. But you know what, Chad, when you started talking to me about this, you mentioned that you live in an area that's very blue. And it sparks my interest. Why do you think that COVID response is breaking down uh, along ideologic lines? And I've I've tried to have this conversation with several people and, and we come up with ideas, but I thought you might have a great idea. You know, I think I think part of it's le- part of it's a legitimate concern with the safety of the population. I, I don't want to say I don't want to say that you know Democrats are are not aiming at a good here. What I think is they are aiming at a good, but it has been filtered through an ideological lens, which wants to tell a narrative um, about how the Republicans are the bad guys that are creating a lot of harm on the country and that that the president is the chief of all the harm and that the Democrats are on the side of safety and health and they're going to protect the American people. Mm-hmm. And so COVID becomes a kind of metaphor for we are the protectors of the health of America and the Republicans are the cause of all things which are causing our downfall. Mm-hmm. And COVID becomes a perfect metaphor for that narrative. The narrative is false. The narrative is, of course, you know, really doesn't match up with the scientific facts of the virus, but it matches up with how people feel politically um, on the left, especially. I guess it makes sense to say, if you're on the left, if you're a Democrat, to say, well, the Republicans are only worried about the GDP and making sure that people with trust funds keep uh, collecting money in their funds. (laughs) But that doesn't make, I mean, I don't think that's true. I think um, it's important to weigh the benefits of of keeping the infection rates low or manageable with the benefits of not exploding the economy and causing all sorts of horrors uh, economically. Um, And let me ask you another question. So I've, I've had, again, this conversation with people, and it occurred to me that could it be that People who are who have a secular outlook, uh, maybe are atheists, or do you think that they have trouble with risk because they see life and in a very finite way that they need to extend their lifetime because this is all they have? They don't have a, a feeling of the transcendent, or do you think I'm just being too philosophical here? No, I think there's there's something to that that there, that salvation because everybody everybody has a kind of sense of of their being risk in life and that that life. You know, life is charged with a sense of, you know, purpose. And we want to be able to save our life. We have this kind of instinct um, for self preservation. 
And when your sense of health and salvation, salvation in, in the old language just meant health, mm-hmm. um, is um, decoupled, uh, unhinged from any sort of real transcendent hope, then all your hope is in a kind of material self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And I think that induces a certain terrible, terrible anxiety um, about um, preserving your life but without any clarity about why, mm-hmm. what for, for what purpose. It, it, it strikes me, especially when I see some pe- people who are very elderly, maybe, mm-hmm. and, um, and don't have very much longer to live, statistically, and still they seem very keen on preserving what they have left, even, even at the cost of great loneliness, and that, that concerns mm-hmm. me. Yeah, I mean, and I've seen the, the other side, too, with the elderly, like, you know, I'm not marrying, wearing a mask um, because, you know, I've, I've survived, you know, two wars and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I think I think the, the general sense of dis-ease and anxiety is part of something that's coming apart in America, which is... Uh, where people stand vis-a-vis Christianity itself. Mm. And I think a lot of our coming apart, you know, what we what we now call polarization, and that's sort of, sort of a boring word now, but we are coming apart. And what are we coming apart around? Um, I mean, it seems to me that I don't like that the right is being associated with Christianity and the left is being associated with sort of socialist, atheistic ideology. But that is the narrative that we're seeing play out. And I think there's something to it. There's something to the idea that America is breaking down on faith lines. And one of my heroes, uh, Catholic philosophers of the 19th century, was the French political observer of America, Alexis de Tocqueville. And he had this fascinating observation in Democracy in America in the second volume about how he thought that America, there was lots of religious switching, as pollsters call it, in the 19th century to Catholics becoming Protestants, Protestants becoming Catholics. But he said, that's not important. I mean, it is kind of important for each individual, but that's not important in the aggregate. In the long term, he said, what's going to happen is that Protestant America will divide into two. Part will become Catholic and join, rejoin Catholic Christianity, and the other part will join pantheism, secularism, atheism. They'll go their own way. He prophesied this he a couple hundred years ago. Because he saw a certain instability, and I think any Catholic thinker who, who spends any time thinking about our Protestant separated brethren know that there is something inherently unstable about Protestant Christianity. And this, we live in a Protestant country that brings mm-hmm. us many blessings and we're grateful for our Protestant friends. But there is something inherently unstable in it. And what Tokyo saw was that instability over time will, and of course, John Henry Newman said this too, it's a kind of via media. You're going to go one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, there's a logical conclusion that you draw, which is that division will be total. And I fear, I fear we're looking at Tocqueville's prophecy. Hmm. And do you think that these people who are inclined to pantheism, <laughs> as Tocqueville said, do you think that they're more comfortable uh, relying, with, with a lack of uh, that uh, a central 
tradition and a hierarchy that we have in the church and do you think that they are they tend more to rely on the state uh, to tell them what to do and and as a as a source of ultimate value maybe that's why they're so eager to formulate all these laws that we have with covid and and then obey them yeah i mean you know uh, the great german philosopher hegel had a basically had a a what he called the sitlichite the moral community the moral community was a kind of replacement for the church the moral mm. community was what drove history that was the realm of of the geist where the spirit was moving and so the moral community is essentially not just the state but that the state is serving the the sitlichite the moral ethical community that constitutes a kind of human church um, which is infused with the spirit which is driving it's it's why you get an almost religious puritanical zeal on the left they are living in a kind of ersatz church a kind of fake church that is giving them this sense that they have moral authority to constitute how we live together The church does think about this itself this way. The church has a magisterium, it has moral teachings, it has authority, it seeks to constitute our understanding of, of the highest good and conform us to Jesus Christ. That is how a church is, but this is a church which is not ordered to God. Well, and the people who are have been since uh, the death of George Floyd, the sad death of George Floyd, who've been protesting uh, and more and rioting and Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, uh, they could be said to be engaging in a in a religious uh, in, in the military side of a of a religious revival. No. Oh, absolutely. I mean, can you can you imagine Martin Luther King Jr. coming back and witnessing it? And uh, you know, I mean, I, I can see a certain kind of Um, you know, symmetry between the Black Panthers of the 60s and the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, both are militant, um, very violent, um, very destructive. Um, and that's precisely what Martin Luther King was saying. No, we're not going to be the Black Panthers, right? Um, and, and so the idea that the Black Lives Matter kind of draws on the American civil rights movement uh, is partly right, but it draws on the worst, most vicious, most atheistic, um, vicious aspects that uh, the, the peaceful civil rights movement had nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the church is in danger, in danger of breaking apart a little bit right on that same tip of the sword of Black Lives Matter. I've seen some rumblings uh, from mm -hmm. from good Catholics uh, who care yeah. about the church, who love the church, who want the church to do the right thing always, using some of that same language of, of uh, right. racial, this terrible racial stain that we all carry um, as Catholics. Even though, I have to say, you know, so much of the Catholic church now is immigrant and Hispanic and hasn't, you know, doesn't have a racial stain of that sort that exists in America. Right. I mean, schism is always possible in, in, any, in any place where Catholics um, want to follow the culture more than they want to follow Christ. Mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, it, it happens over and over again. Um, I think schism is terrible, but I mean, this is, it never harms the mystical unity of the church. It never harms um, 
um, the church's actual unity. What it harms is the people who are separating themselves. And I think we want to go after uh, our brothers and sisters who are who are more eager to follow what's um, what's culturally approved than what's Christ approved. And I, I think that's a that's a recipe for uh, losing some of the faithful. And that that's what concerns me more than schism is that we have well meaning Catholics who have a genuine faith who are confused, who who are throwing in their lot, you know, as my friend put it, they're, they're selling their birthright for a mess of pottage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we, I think we have to go after our friends who are Catholics. They're, they're our brothers and sisters when they are losing their way. Yes, we should be concerned about uh, social evils in our culture, but don't lose the Catholic plot. I've read some uh, rather sad things, I think, about uh, from Catholics saying that the Catholic Church has spent too much time lately worrying about their statues, our statues being desecrated and our churches being burned and and have, haven't spent enough time worrying about systemic racism. And that makes me sad because... I think we can do both. No, we can we can try to preserve our statues and our and our history and the, and all the blessed things that we bring to this country and have brought since before the country existed, and still look out for our minority brothers and sisters and promote an idea, you know, an America you know, where everyone's treated equally, which we all want. I'm not opposed to taking down a statue if the statue really is honoring something vicious. Mm-hmm. But the problem is is the movement has, in a sense, discredited itself by taking down so many statues uh, unjustly, by projecting a kind of lie onto those statues. And I talked about that in my piece today at First Things on, on um, St. Damien and Molokai. Tell our listeners how that, how that shook out with, um, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, she she um she was making some good points about how we should have more women in the statuary hall. That's fine and good. I don't disagree with that. But then she included people like Father Damien, Saint Damien of Molokai, in this idea that people like Saint Damien are part of a white supremacist culture uh, that they're that they're part of a patriarchal system, and that's a lie. Mm-hmm. And, and when you go and pull down a statue for the truth, pull down a statue of, of Marx because it's thought, you know, or pull down a better better example, pull down statues of Pol Pot or Hitler, right? You pull those down because he absolutely is, you know, evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, or his actions were terribly evil. And so pull down those statues. But you can't pull down statues dishonestly. And I think that's what's been happening in America is we've seen many statues uh, that are pulled down dishonestly. And uh, I think we have to resist that. We have to push back and say, is this the reality of the person? Forget the statue for a moment. Is what you're saying about the statue and why it needs to be pulled down true about the actual person that the statue represents? And I think when we go to the actual lives of these people, um, what we see is a much more complex portrait of reality than the kind of caricatures that are being given. 
Uh, and I think we have to resist these lies. We have to resist. Um, we have to be attentive to history, attentive to the past. Um, doesn't mean every statue stays up. But a lot of statues are going to stay up when you actually look at the reality. Well, it seems that St. Damien of Molokai should be one of those statues. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez, um, she objects to him, I imagine, because right. he is in the statuary hall as a Hawaiian, uh-huh. but he is a, a white European. He was a white European from yeah. Belgium. Belgium. And he came to Hawaii to spread the Catholic faith as a priest, as a missionary. And then yeah. I'm sure all our listeners know. Yeah. yeah, and then he abs- then he gave his life knowingly, knowing when he went to the leper colony that he would die a terrible death uh, after many years of suffering, and it was something that he assumed. A man who, who goes to the most radical kind of minority? Yes, and gives his life for the most radical kind of minority. If you can't lionize that man, if you can't praise that man. What is this social justice that you think you're standing for? It, it's, uh, I mean, it's, there, it, I think it exposes the kind of deceitfulness that is in the woke resistance movement. Absolutely. Uh, it, there's a self-deception. These people are self-deceived. I think I wanted to do that in my piece was sort of just to lovingly go through the facts of this man's life. Mm-hmm. Right. Look at the look at the facts. They don't match up to your projections of woke resistance. Um, I think we have to lovingly do that for our neighbors. We have to. Um, we don't have to be strident. We don't have to say nasty things to our our blue neighbors. But I think we we have to say, uh, look, I hear what you're saying. I think you're probably aiming at some good. But what you think about that good? doesn't match reality. What they're using to separate someone like St. Damien from the pantheon of people to honor is his race. That's it's his race, his culture and that in and, itself. And his gender. And his, his gender. Race and his gender. Well, right. I like to call it sex myself, but yes, his sex and uh, yes, yes, no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> what they would call gender, what we would call sex. Um, and that uh, that in itself is sexist and racist. Yeah. Yes, you know, you, you were talking about Martin, Martin Luther King Jr., the reverend, and, and he would have been horrified at this. It, it seems to me that the woke, this woke rebellion is a regression to times mm-hmm. before we had gotten comfortable looking beyond a man or a woman's skin. Yeah. No, there's something, there's, I, I saw a, a kind of satire sketch in which the, the views of straight-up racists like white national what racists were put alongside the woke ideology and I can't I can't remember the particulars of it but it was extraordinary how close their views are it's very it's um, a very scary thing because it's not too long ago in our country but it happens all the time all over the world that society breaks down between two points and the massacre ensues yeah that's a word what do you do? I mean is that where do you think that we are headed? Oh. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. the kind of you know what it, the sixty four thousand dollar question. Where, what's what's the development here? What, what's our logical end game? Do we have one? Well, I think that it's November fourth is going to be the day <laughs> when we see where we're headed. I, it seems that everything is gathering steam towards that day, and that's what I'm afraid of. Actually, that there will be some some sort of great uh, fallout. 
from an election. But it, it seems like whoever wins that. Oh yeah, on both sides, um, I think. I mean, I, I, depending, I think it. I think it's dangerous no matter what happens that day. No matter what happens, it's dangerous. I, mean, I think we could be headed to a constitutional crisis mm-hmm. because there is no way on earth whoever wins, Biden or Trump, that you're going to not have it litigated. There's going. There's going to be some kind of pushback. Now, it might be that the only push that you know uh, Trump graciously concedes, or that Biden graciously concedes, uh, that that's possible. But it seems unlikely. It seems like whoever wins, there is going to be unrest on the other side. Well, and I think also the COVID epidemic is setting us up for that because how who knows how the voting process is going to go? It's setting us up for lots of uh, recriminations when things don't go as right. planned. Will counties, cities, local municipalities uh, allow people to have in-person voting on November? What is it, third or fourth? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't. I think it's possible that uh, you have many, many. Democrat-controlled municipalities saying it's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. We only want mail-in, uh, which I think is terrible. I think I think this this. I mean, we've never been a country that um, has you know mailed in our votes. Uh, this is a civic act in which you participate uh, in your community uh, to elect your leaders uh, the idea that we're going to put it all online or all in mail and just invites enormous conflict uh, as we deal with voter fraud mail fraud etc well 2020 is just getting stranger and stranger I should say curiouser and curiouser curiouser and curiouser I think we have to pray for a country and I think every every time we have mass, we should have as at least one of our intentions, the, the president, the, the country, the states, the governors, the mayors, uh, the people, the, the, uh, and our neighbors. We, we've, got, we've got to really pray for this country. It's in trouble. Certainly true. And thank you, Professor Pecknold, for joining me today. Thank you for sharing your time with us. You've left us with a lot to think about, uh, as though we didn't have thank enough to think me. about. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. You can find, thank you. You can find Chad Pecknold on Twitter at CC Pecknold and make sure to catch all of his writings at firstthings.com. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. Stay tuned right here on EWTN Radio. We'll be right back. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I will talk to Jonathan Butcher. He's an expert on education at the Heritage Foundation because schools are getting ready to open and there seems to be a new plan every day. Whether your kids are in public or in private school, everything is changing rapidly. Different people having different agendas about how kids should go to school. Kids really should go to school. There were many months of uh, lost education for the children last year, and all of us parents are very concerned. But uh, first, I think it's important to talk about something that happened this week. This is presidential candidate 
Joe Biden's pick of Kamala Harris for vice president. And she's a person who ran for the nomination and didn't do very well. She's someone who espouses very hard left positions on many different topics, also from a perspective of the Catholic perspective and also anybody of faith. Kamala Harris has some big drawbacks. The, one of the most important ones is the fact she has shown anti-Catholic animus. In 2018, she questioned Brian Boucher, who was nominated to serve as district judge in Nebraska, about belonging to the Knights of Columbus. As Catholics, we know that the Knights of Columbus is a benevolent association of millions of members across the world that do tremendous things for the poor and the needy and have done for over a hundred years. And they also even help In a, in a significant way, our suffering brothers and sisters in the Middle East. She took offense at the pro-life mission of the Knights, and she implied that anybody who belongs to the Knights signs up to their idea, and our idea, frankly, that all human life is dignified and should be cared for from conception to, to natural end. And that, therefore, uh, Brian Boucher, this man, should not be allowed to serve on the bench because he, couldn't, he was biased because he was pro-life. So anyway, we should all be a little afraid of all that because, first of all, to throw rocks at the Knights of Columbus and then also to imply that if one is pro-life, one cannot serve on the bench. I mean, these there shouldn't be religious tests for serving on the judiciary. There should also not be, in any way, shape, or form, prejudices against people who are pro-life. Kamala Harris thinks that being Catholic disqualifies anyone from being a judge. And a couple other things to consider that is that as, as Attorney General, Harris filed a brief with the U.S. Supreme Court asking it to refuse Hobby Lobby's request to deny women health care coverage for contraception because of the craft store chain owner's religious beliefs. So she was definitely on the wrong side of the contraception fight there. Also, as California Attorney General, she drew criticism from the State Catholic Conference when she sponsored a bill compelling pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise free or low-cost abortion services to their clients. So basically the pregnancy centers in California, I work in a pregnancy center here in Miami, we take care of pregnant women who are in need of care so that they can bring their children into the world. She wanted pregnancy centers like ours to advertise free or low-cost abortion services. Imagine what a terrible thing, exactly against the mission of our pregnancy centers. Let's not forget that during her time as California Attorney General, Kamala Harris ordered a raid on David DeLayden's home after his undercover Planned Parenthood investigation. So David DeLayden is a journalist who conducted undercover investigations of Planned Parenthood where he showed real criminal activity taking place, and she prosecuted him for this. So in all these different ways, Kamala Harris is not a great pick for Joe Biden, for vice president from a Catholic perspective, and we need to keep all of that in mind. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm looking at school starting now at the end of August, beginning of September, and having all my various children here and wondering what's going to happen. A lot of balls are still up in the air all across the country as far as school starting, and we've seen some really crazy scenarios playing out as we deal with not only the virus, but the panic around the virus, and then all the other things that get uh, balled up with all that. So we've asked uh, Jonathan Butcher now uh, to join us. He's a senior policy analyst for the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, Jonathan. 
Good afternoon. I know that you have been thinking about all these different uh, ways that education resuming now in August and September at all different levels, right, from elementary to college. This is affecting every single family, it seems, in the United States and even the wider economy and wider society. Well, you're absolutely right. And the news seems to change from day to day. Uh, I think, in fact, there are three things, I think, that in this present moment, based on the news that we've seen really just over the last 24 to 48 hours, hours that appear to be the latest of what's going on. I would say first that now there is the question of whether or not schools in New York City will reopen for in-person learning. And there's a conversation that's been started among lawmakers there and a proposal needs to be approved in order to get schools to reopen in person. And that's significant because New York City is such a large district. So we can talk more about that if you'd like. Uh, I would say the second thing is that parents aren't waiting. I think around the country, parents are making decisions for themselves to either hire personal tutors or create what has become known as learning pods. And this is an interesting development in the whole landscape of uh, educational options uh, around the U.S. And then finally, the third thing is that the story for private schools has changed pretty dramatically over the past just a couple of weeks. And I think there are reports now that private schools are even having waiting lists and they're beginning to see interest surge. Now, Jonathan, this seems to me like a very regional thing. So depending exactly where you're standing as an American and in your little community or your wider community, you are experiencing various things. And as you say, things are changing very rapidly. So, for instance, I have a child in a parochial school and another child in an independent Catholic school, a high school. They've just switched everything on us. We were going to open in person and now we're going virtual on a week by week basis. As you say, this this is causing all sorts of Everything seems uh, so complicated, but why do you think that private schools are now being get, are getting a second look from parents when even private schools are not sure what's going to happen in the next two weeks? Well, and that's a great question because there has been such a long line of uncertainty really since the middle of March. I think what parents are deciding now is that especially parents in some of the largest school districts in the U.S., most of these large districts are choosing to open just online. Okay, so we're talking about, until recently anyway, New York City may have been included in that list, but we're talking about Atlanta, Nashville, Los Angeles, uh, Miami. So, you know, you have lots of families right in in these areas and so as they see that they may be going back to the same kind of ad hoc virtual instruction that students had at the end of the last semester, I think many parents were not not pleased with that. I think many were fearful, and surveys back this up. There was a, a um, ABC News survey that showed 59% of, of parents, and this was just from a week ago, I think, two weeks maybe, that they were afraid that their, that their students were still falling behind. So with parents having this mindset, right, that they're afraid students are falling behind, now they are turning and looking at private schools and saying, okay, private schools are smaller, generally speaking. Often they can have smaller class sizes. And so these schools can adjust better to these changing conditions. And I'll leave you with one last thought on this on this idea here. I was talking to a private school, a Catholic school, in fact, in Philadelphia, and they were telling me, it's a, it was actually a network of private schools, and they said, look, we've outlined a, a hybrid plan that will get students back in person at least two days a week because we know how important that is. And 
And it's not probably not ideal, right? Because I think for parents who feel like they need students to be back in person, it, it, it at least, I think, accommodates this idea that there may be some who are still nervous and they want to have appropriate cleaning procedures and they, you know, they want to be following some of the best practices. You know, with all that in mind, I think these private schools in Philadelphia were able to adjust so quickly because they didn't have to worry about some of the bureaucratic overhead that many districts struggle with. Do you think that private school students, when everyone went virtual suddenly in March, do you think that private school students got better instruction because the private schools are more nimble and quick to adjust in general than public schools? That's a big question I know I'm asking you, but what do you think? Well, I can give you some examples, right? So I talked to some families in North Carolina as well as Arizona that use what are called education savings accounts. Now, these are available in six states around the country. And uh, so with these accounts, a portion of a child's funds from the state funding formula goes into a private account that parents can then use to either pay private school tuition, pay for online classes, hire a personal tutor, a variety of different things. Those families that had access to this flexible spending plan, they could adjust right away right? I mean, they could find a tutor online or they could find an educational therapist online. So likewise, I think many private schools were also able to adjust pretty quickly, right? They didn't have to go and find approval from district administrators. They could uh, experiment with different ways of communicating with students and with their families. By the same token, charter schools around the U.S. also reported the same thing to me. I was talking to a, a charter school in uh, Arizona as well, and they were saying, hey, look, when the the shutdown started, it came right up against their spring break. So they actually had a week pretty early on in the shutdowns where they could, uh, everyone was, was gone anyway. So they had all their teachers get together virtually, probably, and figure out what they were going to do when kids came back. So I think it was that kind of planning, I think, because charter schools, you know, much like private schools, are able to make adjustments without waiting for levels of approval, again, coming down from some sort of administrative body. So yes, I mean, I think answer your question, this idea that the schools that have more autonomy now were better suited to adjust for what was coming. Well, let's face it, in general, in American education, public schools are not serving many students all across the United States who are getting really poor educations. And parents would love the opportunity to send their kids to a private school. Do you think that uh, this situation that we're facing now where private schools are performing better and are more eager to get back into the classroom? than public schools. Do you think that that has, that could help in the school choice, the fight for school choice? Well, we're seeing some results right away. In fact, the governors of South Carolina, Oklahoma, New Hampshire have all taken a portion of the spending, the relief money that Congress passed way back in March, and they've used that money to create private school scholarships. And so that was done in South Carolina by Governor McMaster just about two weeks ago. 5,000 scholarships will be available there. Similar numbers in Oklahoma, where they've also created what are called digital wallets that will allow families some flexibility to buy other materials. And then a scholarship program, new scholarship option uh, up in New Hampshire as well. So, you know, that's interesting. When governors were given the chance to stare a challenge like this in the face and had the flexibility to create some sort of solution, what they turned to was a private school choice option. So I, I think that in itself, I, I think is a, is a pretty significant statement. That is amazing. And how do you think the, the teacher unions are taking this. 
Well, they're going to hate it. Yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, they um, already uh, called for a national day of action uh, on August the third. I mean, look, the, the thing about this particular protest was that they were protesting the reopening of schools under unsafe conditions, which, by the way, no one is calling for. I haven't heard a single lawmaker or parent say that we should open schools, irrespective, you know, regardless of how safe it may be. Uh, so no one said that, but they were protesting even though the schools were still closed, mm-hmm. right? Like schools in these large cities, they weren't going to open for in-person. They were going to be online. And yet the unions were behind protests anyway. That is a bit of a mystery to me. I, I would say that the that is their response. I mean, that they're an, a, a, a easy to organize and protests are kind of what they are able to do uh, reflexively almost. I think the interesting thing to watch at this point is that aside from unions, some traditional schools were getting some inkling that they see what's going on and they understand the need to give parents uh, some flexibility. And so there was a, an article that was just out yesterday from Indiana that said that some district schools are helping to form these small pandemic pods or learning pods where they create very small groups of students and a teacher that will then function together for a period of time in order to prevent large groups, right, and to try to mitigate whatever spread may be happening. And this is what parents have been talking about for the past two months. So, you know, district schools, when given the chance, I think they're catching on because parents aren't going to wait. I have a sister-in-law who, who just started a pod. It's going to start now in a couple of weeks. And she uh, has a second grader, a girl going into second grade who doesn't, who spent the last few months of the last year learning nothing because she's too young to sit in front of a computer screen. And her mother's a lawyer who's working from home. And my brother also works from home. So they started a pod and it made me think, you know, it made me sad for the lack, the lack of ability of so many other parents who can't organize with, with a group of friends and hire a teacher who in the end uh, ends up being very expensive, even if she's only only teaching a handful of children for two or three hours a day, which is the case in my sister-in-law's case. There's been a lot of conversation in the media, especially about what will this do to the concept of equity in American education. And that's that's a real concern, right? Because we all want every child to have the best opportunity every school year, right? No matter where they are, no matter their zip code. There are a couple, you know, a couple of things that I think we can keep our eye on to watch. One is uh, what's happened in out, out in Oklahoma, that scholarship that I was talking about. There is a school there that is uniquely designed just to serve children who are from homeless families. And And there are 26,000 homeless children in Oklahoma City, and this school uh, serves a little more than 100 of them. But the scholarships that the Oklahoma governor has approved would now allow a school like that one to serve more families or to continue to operate even in the midst of whatever final financial downturn that we're facing. And likewise, when it comes to these pandemic pods, this is a great opportunity for lawmakers to say, all right, look, we need to give parents the flexibility to create this same thing, even if it would otherwise be out of reach for them financially. And with education savings accounts in Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Tennessee, Mississippi, we have a model here, right? We have a model of a flexible spending account that we can give to parents and and ways to keep that safe and have appropriate levels of oversight of how that money is used. So look, I think I think the solutions are here for those that are concerned about this issue of equity. And what about parochial schools and small religious, other small religious schools? They don't have the money to stand many months of, of shutdowns and virtual teaching because th- the other perspective is that if, if parents are straining their wallets to buy into a, a small religious school of an education for their children, 
children, but it's online, they might as well go to the public school if the child's not getting all the second the secondary benefits of a religious education. Aren't a lot of these smaller schools uh, in danger of having to close? They absolutely are. And I think we have heard um, research from the Cato Institute, for example, has been tracking school closures across the country, uh, private school closures, that is, and they've registered a little more than 100 right now. But that, I think, is why the recent news, I mean, even yesterday, I think, I found a, an article from South Carolina that said that independent schools, private schools down here are um, uh, beginning to, to see waiting lists because parents are more interested. So there's, you know, there's an interesting sort of a slow adjustment happening, whereas before we were very concerned that, you know, private schools, especially Catholic schools that have been around for years and years and years, I mean, decades, generations, uh, would be, you know, would be threatened. And I, and I think that threat is still there, right? I think it's still, um, it still is very much a, uh, a threat. However, with schools in large districts, uh, assigned schools remaining closed, um, that changes the equation, right? I mean, it changes what parents are thinking of. I think many parents now are saying, I was not not pleased with what happened last spring. And, and I feel like if a school is going to take reasonable steps, right, to keep uh, students safe and teachers safe, that to get my child the best option that I can. And, you know, let's face it, it's, it's not dangerous for children to go to school, according to the American Academy for Pediatrics. In fact, they make a very big point that it's dangerous for children not to go to school in person, that there are a lot of secondary things that the school does for the safety of children and for their health that has nothing to do with education in a sense. Their oversight of, of what's happening in the child's life and even nutrition. Uh, sadly, a lot of children get their main meals at school. So all these are these the kind of things that drew um, the change in New York that, that uh, made that change in New York that now suddenly they're pushing for the children to come back to school? Or was it more a sense of of, uh, a problem with the economy that if parents are taking home taking care of the children at home they're not available to go out to work well hard to say I mean I'm sure some of all of that right went into the thinking there I think that with organizations in the United States and in Europe now saying just what you were explaining there that what we know so far about COVID-19 is that the effect on students is on children is uh, is minimal um, I think that is beginning to sink in with uh, with many people Nevertheless, though, I think that this general concept that if someone shows symptoms or if someone has been exposed, that they need to stay home, they need to not expose others. There are basic things that schools can do from taking students' temperatures to putting some pretty reasonable rules around wearing masks in certain areas and kind of all of the, the best practices that we've developed over this very quick period of figuring out how to deal with the virus. I mean, I think, you know, I think those things are what are really going to get us through this fall, right? I think that for schools to, to tell parents, we need your help to not send children who, have, who are ill to school, to anyone who shows uh, symptoms, be prepared that, that we were gonna, we're gonna ask you to stay home. I think it's that, that kind of common sense stuff, I think will go a long way here. And uh, especially because the information and the, the guidelines that we keep getting about how to deal with the virus continue to change so much. Uh, I think there's some, there's some common sense that families can use as they think about their, their child and their child's community. Seems to me like it's something that the entire country should be working towards, getting the children back in school in a safe way and all of us helping each other to make that happen. And I think you're doing your part, Jonathan. And thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Thank you. You can find Jonathan on Twitter at JM underscore Butcher and also by visiting heritage.org.
Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. When Jesus will give a pagan woman the greatest compliment he could give anyone, the type of tribute he wanted to give to every one of his fellow Jews, the accolade he wants to give every Christian, the commendation he wants to say about each of us now and when we meet him face to face. Great is your faith. Jesus' praise wasn't cheap. It was the result of the way the woman responded to the terrible problem of having a possessed daughter and all of the difficulties that likely led to her possession and followed it. It was the result of a dialogue with Jesus that would have tested her faith to the limit. It was the end result of a process of growth and faith that culminated with Jesus' amazed acclaim. In Sunday's Gospel, we're able to enter into this scene and learn from this Canaanite woman how we, too, can grow in faith so that our faith may genuinely become great. The question we ought to ask at the outset, however, is whether our faith is great or small or just average. Are we living by faith? Is our faith the most important aspect of our self-identity? Jesus once wondered aloud whether, when he returned, he would find faith on earth at all. Jesus were to come right now, would he compliment us like he praised the Canaanite woman? Would he say of us what he often said of some of his closest followers at the beginning? Oh, you of little faith. Most of us, if we're honest, are kind of like that man whose son Jesus healed to possession, to whom Jesus said, all things are possible to one who has faith, but who responded, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. The son of Jesus gives us that help through his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. We see her great faith shine and grow in three tests Jesus gave her. The first test happened when she went up to Jesus and called out, Have pity on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is tormented by a demon. Jesus' response was total silence. St. Matthew, an eyewitness, tells us he didn't say a word in answer. It seems almost a cruel thing to do to a desperate mother. But Jesus, who almost certainly was prepared to work the exorcism, wanted to effectuate a far greater miracle on that day on behalf of the woman, on behalf of the disciples with him, on behalf of all of us. And to do that, he needed to try her faith. For us, we too need to learn how to deal with God's silence. We pray and don't seem to get a response sometimes. Pray again, and it seems the doors remain shut. How do we handle it? Many of us give up. We stop praying. We think God doesn't care. What God is often doing in these circumstances is giving us a chance to learn how to pray perseveringly so that we may grow in faith to such a degree that he'll, that we will always persevere in fidelity. Regardless, when Jesus responded to the woman with cold silence, perhaps even seeming to ignore her, the woman didn't give up. Her second attempt was intercession. She ran up to the disciples and asked them to intervene. We can imagine her grabbing on their clothes and arms, raising her voice, begging their assistance. The disciples had had it. They approached Jesus and said, send her away for she keeps calling out after us. They were asking Jesus to work a miracle just to get rid of a bothersome lady. Jesus refused their advances too. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he said. This woman was a pagan have-not. It would have been easy for her to go away and wallow in self-pity. It would have been easy for her to call Jesus and the apostles hypocrites, heartless, and other names. But she wasn't going to give up. Having been rebuffed a second time, she ran up to Jesus, fell down on her stomach before him, and begged simply, Lord, help me. We know this word help 
It's one of the most poignant expressions that exist in any language. But Jesus didn't respond. He said, rather, it's not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. We don't know if Jesus said this with a wink of the eye or with a tone in his voice to soften it, but the expression Jesus used in response to this woman's cry for help was hugely insulting. In the ancient world, most dogs were stray, eating your trash, defecating at your front door, attacking kids when they were playing in the squares. To call somebody a stray dog in contrast to children was about the most denigrating thing that could have been said. Many of us, if we had been called by Jesus something similar, may have just stopped in our tracks and wept or insisted to be treated with greater respect. This woman didn't. Instead, faithfully, she agreed with Jesus. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the little dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table of their masters. She changed Jesus' word dog into little dog, saying that even the little puppies eat the little crumbs that come from the children's table. She was essentially saying that, yes, she's an insignificant little dog barking incessantly, who knows she's not worthy to receive what the children do. But she was professing her faith that Jesus was Lord, Jesus was good shepherd, even of the poodles, and even the littlest crumb of his mercy would be enough to work the exorcism of 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 her daughter. Jesus was moved by the woman's persistence, by her great trust, by her deep theological understanding. So he proclaimed what had been revealed over the course of their dialogue. O woman, great is your faith. Her faith was not crumb-like in size. It wasn't a mustard seed. It was much bigger, and faith like that can move mountains. Jesus then worked the miracle the woman had been requesting. Let it be done for you as you wish, he said, an echo of what his mother had said in faith to the archangel Gabriel. St. Matthew tells us the woman's daughter was healed from that very instant. This Sunday at Mass, we will meet the same Lord the Canaanite woman did. He will not give us leftover crumbs from the table, but will nourish us first with every word that comes from his mouth, and then with himself as the bread of life. Let's ask him to give us the grace of holy perseverance and prayer in the Christian life and faith so that the Lord may say of us today, tomorrow, and at the day he comes for us, great is your faith. Give us a seat with all those who have become great in faith in the eternal banquet of God's children. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers.